Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. Hi, Janet. We're back for a Justice Update in cooperation with JusticeInfo.net. Hi, Steph. Yeah, in a surprise move, the Office of the Directorate of Public Prosecutions, that's the ODPP, one of the acronyms we're going to get used to in this podcast, in Kenya, has announced that they plan to bring cases in their own courts against individuals, including members of the Kenyan police who were involved in violence or allegedly involved in violence after the 2017 election. Yeah, this isn't the same as the 2007-2008 post-vote violence, which was supposed to be dealt with and wasn't really so much by the International Criminal Court. But again, in 2017, there were ethnically based violent reactions to the vote. Yeah, I called up uh, Tom Maliti to start with, a journalist based in Nairobi. He's a long-term observer of international criminal justice. And he explained to me that there was widespread violence I'm in a number of different areas including in the huge slum that people may have heard of, Kibera, near Nairobi, where also some of that previous 2007 and 2008 violence had occurred. The night that the Electoral Commission declared uh, Kenyatta the winner, shootings started happening in Kibera. And those continued, so that, that was the Friday night, continued into Saturday the National Commission on Human Rights determined that as there are about 50-something people were killed. Opposition politicians at that time talked about, talked about 100. I know there are other groups that investigated sexual crimes, uh, sexual violence uh, allegations. And I think they, they, they documented as many as 200 and something victims of sexual violence during that uh, weekend. And I guess going on forward. So, so for me, if individuals were now, you know, charged with those crimes, then I'll, I'll be like, okay, this is worth paying attention to. This is now, you know, the government being serious. And then to explain how serious this really all is, I caught up with Kathy Roberts and Maxine Marcus. We know them, of course, as two very highly experienced investigators and prosecutors. Yeah, we had them on the podcast before talking alongside a prosecutor from Kosovo. Max and Kathy are the co-founders and directors of Partners in Justice International, and you can hear them in that podcast talking about how they work with local prosecutors and they transfer skills and provide expertise to allow local prosecutors to to prosecute international crimes and war crimes and crimes against humanity. And they haven't just been working in Kosovo. They've actually, since 2019, they've been working with the Kenyan Office of the Directorate of Public Prosecutions, the ODPP, and also the Independent Policing Oversight Authority. That's another acronym we'll hear, IPOA or IPOA. And their request, um, backed by the United Nations, that's where funding came from, some different agencies, they had asked for Max and Kathy to come and provide some mentoring to the teams in relation to how exactly to investigate and how to prosecute these post-election violence cases. And specifically, they've been working on a case that uh, happened in Kusumu, uh, and it's called the Baby Pendo case. And that's way back in 2017, had huge traction in Kenya. It was really famous because it was a very clear example of what the police had been doing straight after the election. They 
were allegedly attacking a family and the the woman in this family was standing with the baby in her arms when there was kind of this rain of truncheons or something down on her and the baby later died. So that was very well known. There was an inquest into it. It was clear who had been responsible, but then kind of nothing seemed to happen. And if you read the press release from the Kenyan ODPP, this investigation, yes, is centered on Kisumu and it focused on the baby pendo case, but it's more than just that case. It's also sexual and gender-based violence and rapes that have happened. Yeah, I did also, like I think many people who might have uh, have read this, look back at the Kenyan National Human Rights Commission report into what happens. They published a report in 2018. I mean, Tom mentions it, I think, already. And there were crimes all over the country which were allegedly perpetrated by security forces, as he's already mentioned. And these were really quite horrendous things a lot of sexual crimes. So here's Maxine, and then she's followed by Kathy, and they explain how they worked on this investigation. They were more than willing to move forward on this case and other cases, but they were not yet able. They didn't have the technical knowledge on investigating and prosecuting international crimes. And But with immense determination and in-depth hard work, they did all the hard work themselves. We supported but they did all the difficult parts. So that's IPOA and ODPP. The credit goes to them. The part that that really is our sweet spot is that we were able to bring victim representatives and CSOs together with state justice actors in support of survivor-centered justice. So there is now a coordinated group that involves the government and civil society brought together to work together on this case. And that's been extremely rewarding to see that uh, those relationships being built. Is that why you think this is so significant or is there a a broader significance to how this has come about? Right, well, obviously the first and most important significance is for the survivors. And that's the the family of of baby Samantha Pindo, who's kind of famously the, the sort of heart of this case and the heart of of the demands for justice that have been coming from victims and survivors for years. But it's also, you know, a very significant case because it's the first crimes against humanity case to be prosecuted in Kenyan national courts. It's the first one to use uh, command or superior responsibility. It is the first use of the International Crimes Act, which domesticated the Rome Statute. So it's, it's significant in just a number of ways that, you know, as I said, the community has been calling for justice for years. The Independent Policing Oversight Agency, or IPOA, has done just a phenomenal investigation of the Baby Pindo case, but also showing that there were many others, scores of others who were targeted in widespread and systematic attacks by the police. So, you know, this is a case about justice for baby Samantha and for the other victims around her. Just going to mention to listeners that they might hear some noise in the back of uh, Kathy's uh, answers. It sounds like she's uh, wonderfully placed near a school and it's probably break time at the moment as we're chatting. What I particularly noticed was beyond the baby Pendo case, which is well known in Kenya, not necessarily worldwide, was actually a mention of sexual and gender based crimes. And you look back and you see this incredible report from the Kenya National Human Rights Commission, where, I mean, some horrendous details came out as to what happened in 2017. I mean, incredibly 
kind of brave survivors to, to talk through these very, very nasty sexual assaults, many from within the, the security forces, the police themselves. Maybe you could talk through that what may be known or not known or, or where you think this is going to go with the sexual and gender-based crimes aspect. Sure, absolutely. So it's true that the case started, right, with Baby Pendo's killing. In other words, that was, let's say, the heartstring that was pulled and the justice that everybody wanted to see because that baby was killed directly by police in the days after the, the announcement of the presidential election results in 2017. But what happens when you investigate crimes against humanity uh, is that you start with one case and you start looking next door and down the block and around the corner and you actually find that the baby is not alone and that the, the killing of the baby was part of a widespread and systematic attack in that area during those days by police in the immediate days, it's all within a, a few days after the announcement, which, which meant that, that the killing of the baby was part of a pattern that involved torture, sexual violence, and the killing of the baby. So all by the same police under the same command structures in the same neighborhoods, essentially. And that is the pattern that IPOA delved into of course, none of this could have been possible without the incredible documentation work that had been done by CSOs and by the Kenya National Commission on Human Rights, as you say, over years. So the long work by CSOs, as most places, if not everywhere, is what made this possible, right? But I have to say that, but or and, that the work that IPOA did to investigate this case is incredible. So now this case involves the killing of the baby, and the case also involves uh, widespread and systematic use of horrific acts of sexual and non-sexual torture in addition to the killing of the baby. Uh, you keep on using this term widespread and systematic and you know anybody who I've ever talked to, any journalist I've ever trained, I say look widespread systematic equals potentially crimes against humanity. Is that why we have the International Crimes Act involved because that's the Rome statute as you say sort of put into domestic law rather than I don't know it could just be a bit of murder a bit of rape a bit of something I mean is that why the ICA itself gets gets invoked yes I mean I think that's that's exactly right of course torture sexual violence murder those are all good ordinary crimes there's certainly crimes that could have been prosecuted under the ordinary criminal code but the ordinary, ordinary criminal codes are not generally designed to capture mass crimes, patterns of crimes, systematic patterns of crimes that are targeting a particular population. That's what we see here. So a bunch of single individual prosecutions of a bunch of individuals who committed certain crimes would not reflect the reality of what, what was experienced in those days. At the same time, you know, international crimes are kind of structured in a way that allows you to capture those who are more responsible, right? The direct perpetrators are often not identifiable in these kind of contexts, and that's true here too. But the particular units that were involved, the use of command responsibility allows you to go after the superiors who are responsible for those more widespread attacks. So the whole, the reality of the crime is better reflected as a crime against humanity or as several crimes against humanity and the responsibility can be properly placed at those who are 
more responsible for what happened. Ooh, finding who exactly is responsible because I mean it actually says also in the press release from the public prosecutor's office it uses the term chain of command, which is always of interest because yeah, these are often security forces, not random individuals. And the question then comes, did anyone tell them what to do? Who told them what to do? Who told that person what to do, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, where are we going with this case? Right. So I think the decision on that is ultimately, of course, up to the, the public prosecutor's office and, and IPOA, who are the main ones investigating serious violations by police. Look, this case focuses on events during a few days in one location in Kisumu, right? The higher up you go in the chain of command, the larger the number of areas that would need to be investigated and the larger the case, in fact. This case can always form part of a larger case later on, which can reach higher levels of responsibility. In fact, that's how ICTY began, right? We started with lower level cases and lower level perpetrators. And that all became relevant later in building higher level cases further up the chain, which involved you know, that location as well as scores of other locations and other victims. So this makes complete sense to start, to start in a local focused location and bring justice where you can bring justice. So, you know, we, we're technical experts. We do our work to support those who are willing to bring justice to survivors wherever they live. And we can tell you that this case is just the first and it is an absolutely outstanding, phenomenal step and very courageous taken by, uh, by the DPP himself and all the hard work, uh, all the credit goes really to the justice actors and the CSOs whose documentation has supported all this. So we're so incredibly, incredibly honored and privileged to to be able to walk shoulder to shoulder with our with our colleagues in Kenya. Well, that's kind of intriguing, isn't it? The idea that maybe uh, the Kenyan authorities might actually be pursuing more cases rather than just these ones in Kusumu and actually going up this chain of command, as Maxine says, just like happened at the Yugoslav tribunal. Absolutely. And I think you always need these kind of cases to get to the low hanging fruit or the people who are easily uh, prosecuted to then move up the chain of who were they reporting to. And that's a very well known strategy. It's something that the ICC uh, under Ben Sud also said she would switch to. I'm not sure Khan will keep the same strategy. We'll have to see. He's not so uh, expansive about his strategy. But the, uh, under the last thing Ben Suda said is we're going to try and go after lower perpetrators to bring that chain of command up higher. So so it's interesting to see that they're doing that here as well. And just while I was uh, working around this uh, area, I thought that I'd ask a couple of observers, including Tom, who we've heard earlier, to kind of give me a bit more context around this. So the first kind of caveat or the first warning that Tom Maliti, a journalist based in Nairobi, gave to me was that there's really very low public confidence in the police anyway, which kind of also means that the institutions around it, even the institutions who are investigating the police also don't have a lot of confidence. I mean, you know, the public perception of their integrity, whether it's traffic police who are trying to get a small handout from you, so this kind of levels of corruption, or even these death squads which have been run by some of the security forces, those have been investigated, but n- nobody seems to be being put on trial about them. There's a river 
in Western Kenya, which now has been determined to have been a dump site for people who were killed by these death squads. The Independent Police Oversight Authority says that they have uh, determined that there are, between a period of so many months, there are 112 bodies that were found in this particular river. So that speaks to the police, the police service reputation. Corruption continues to be a big issue. The, the obvious example is uh, the traffic police, uh, both in Nairobi and outside Nairobi. Their, their reputation remains intact in terms of seeking bribes for anything and everything. So yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a stellar reputation. It's not known to, people don't go to the police to, in order to get help. I, you know, people may go to the police because they require, they know it's required, but they don't expect that the police will, will, will do what it's supposed to do. And, and yet, when there's political pressure for them to investigate things, they'll investigate. And I also had a chat to Jeffrey Lugano, a lecturer at Kenyatta University, and he was also giving me a slightly broader critique of this principle of using the International Crimes Act, which is essentially how the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court has now come into the way that crimes can be dealt with in in Kenya. He was worried, for example, that issues of gravity might come into play. The good, good defense lawyer would be able to poke holes in any case and say, look, these people are the low-level people, as you put it, Stephanie, the low-hanging fruit. And as Maxine had said, yeah, agreed, these are the the kind of the basic police officers and therefore charging them with crimes against humanity might be something that a good defence lawyer would be able to challenge in court. The question that for me came up was, you know, what is the rationale for invoking the International Crimes Act? When we know that the ICC normative framework mostly is for, especially the International Crimes Act, it looks at gravity. So I don't know to what extent the gravity threshold will be met in this particular case where you have maybe 12 deaths and a few instances of sexual violence. So to me, it might be counterintuitive to invoke this act. You could just go the ordinary way. We use as ordinary crimes to convict these people because if the defense would be skillful enough to read through the Rome Statute and know the kind of concepts and principles under which the, the court convicts and operates, then it will... And he also said that he was really quite, not concerned, but would be really very surprised if when you look at command responsibility and you could see how high an investigation would need to go or a series of investigations would need to go. I mean, the question really there is, will they? Would they go up higher? How high will the command, how high will the command go? You know, because the, the, maybe the person who was responsible for commanding that particular division will say, oh, I was told by my, maybe the director of public, by the director of, you know, the, of the police, at the regional level, then the regional level says, oh, it was from the National Command Center. The National Command Center can say, oh, it was the president who gave me the command. So then how high? Is That's the question. Absolutely. And I think we see that in, in courts all the time with this chain of command. Yes, you need to have the police officers on the ground, and usually you can link up to somebody higher in the structure. But it remains increasingly difficult to to tie that all the way up to the people that I think the general public 
would like to see on trial or, or things that are responsible, people like presidents or, or ministers, it's really, really hard to make that chain all, all the way up. So that is something we see in all of those cases have the same issue. And when you have a president on trial, it's hard to move it up, but also it's hard to go from the policeman on the ground up to the president. Um, for me, I mean, this case shows that kind of despite the maybe the cynicism that sometimes we have that maybe these cases can't really be dealt with at a domestic level, that these cases are too tough and therefore that's why they always have to end up at the ICC. This is an example of where it looks like local investigators, local prosecutors are really prepared to kind of grasp the nettle and really get on with with putting this this case forward and i mean you can just hear it in my voice i'm i am surprised i'm amazed that this is happening and i'm i'm really intrigued and i'm really wondering how this will work because i think it's going to be a great example if it does work absolutely and it's been such i mean the icc made such a how can i say this nicely a dog's breakfast i guess of the icc case of the icc kenya case there was great hope for accountability via the ICC that didn't happen in the Kenyatta case and the Ruto San case. And then there was some idea that maybe maybe that case with the lawyer Gicheru would get some back because he might be prosecuted for uh, trying to influence witnesses in that other in those other cases. And and that didn't uh, work because he died before this case could come to trial. So, I mean. Maybe maybe it is so that we always hear that yeah national uh, prosecutions can't deal with these cases, but in this case, international prosecution couldn't deal with them either. So maybe maybe they have more luck at home with this. Yeah, well, uh, I'm certainly going to be watching. I'll be asking Kenyan journalists to to give us some insights uh, into what happens and uh, see whether it's just one case, several cases, or a whole slew of cases that comes up. Absolutely, it's it's a one to watch in Kenya for us. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe give us a rating and spread the word.